you brought your Bible with you this morning, please turn to Psalm 111. This is a good psalm for us as we head into Thanksgiving week to refocus our minds and our hearts on where Thanksgiving belongs and what we should be thanking God for. We are in Psalm 111. It says this, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. J.I. Packer, in the opening of his excellent book titled Knowing God, writes this. On January 7, 1855, the minister of New Park Street Chapel in Southwark, England, opened his morning sermon as follows. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea. But I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God who he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the deity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can, other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise and he is like a wild donkey's colt and with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. 
He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and of Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go. Plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial, as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. Those words were spoken by Charles Haddon Spurgeon the Prince of Preachers, when he was just 20 years old. Those are fitting words for the opening of Packer's book on knowing God, knowing the glorious attributes of God's nature. And it's a good introduction for us this morning as we look at Psalm 111, which is a psalm of praise and thanksgiving for the infinite goodness and glory of God, for what God has done and continues to do on behalf of his people for his own namesake. Psalm 111 is an acrostic psalm. It's an alphabetic psalm. Apart from the first line of the psalm, there are 22 lines, and each line starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that would have been easier for them to memorize and use in a worship setting. Psalm 112 is a companion to Psalm 111. It's also an acrostic poem, psalm. And its successive lines are also... Uh, successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But Psalm 112 is focused on the works and character of the child of God, and Psalm 111 is focused on the works and character of God himself. And Psalm 111 is a hymn of praise. It would have been sung in corporate worship. The psalm reminds and teaches you and me about the greatness of God, the greatness of his works, his glorious nature. So it's instructional. It teaches us. It instructs us as we worship God. And when we sing a song like this, it actually does exactly what the Apostle Paul instructed us to do in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, that as we're led by the Spirit of God, we should address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a big part of what happens in a corporate worship service. When we sing, we sing to God and we sing to one another. 
When we sing truths about God, we're singing and teaching one another and affirming truths about God to one another. As we hear one another singing those truths. All of God's work, all of God's doings, whatever he does, reveals his character. Every act of God displays and magnifies one or more of his perfect attributes. In other words, God does what he does because of who he is. And so when the psalmist here talks about God's work, he also is highlighting elements of God's character. He pairs them together, and we'll see that as we move along. So here's the big idea in Psalm 111. Here's the big idea. God is glorious, and his works are magnificent. So praise him with your whole heart. And fear him to gain divine wisdom. So we praise and thank God for his works and for his perfect divine character that's behind those works. I see four ways in the psalm we should respond to God in light of who God is and what God has done for us. Four ways we should respond to God. Number one, praise God with your whole heart. Praise God with your whole heart. Verse 1 sets the tone for the rest of the psalm. He says, praise the Lord, exclamation point, hallelujah, in the Hebrew. Psalms 111, 112, and 113 all begin with the same word of praise. Praise the Lord. It's an enthusiastic, passionate expression of praise to God. This psalm is a reminder to the people the people of God, to praise him and to praise him with energy and with passion and with zeal. Honestly, it's almost inconceivable that you and I who love God and study our Bibles and participate in corporate worship and are in growth groups and serve God in ministry would need to be reminded to praise and thank God. Praise and thanksgiving should just roll off of our lips when we roll out of bed in the morning and when we go throughout our day and when we hit the pillow again at night, all day long, every day. The problem is we have puny brains and we're constantly distracted. And we need to be reminded in our busy lives to think about God and to notice his handiwork to see what God is up to, to think about it and ponder it and to praise him throughout our day. And that's what Psalm 111 is doing. The psalmist reminds me, it reminds you to think about and ponder and soak in the greatness and glory of God and delight in him and praise him. Grand and lofty thoughts about God should lead us directly to worship him. That should be the pattern we think Thoughts about how glorious he is, and, we, and it spills off our lips. Oh, God, praise you. He says two things about his thanksgiving and praise. First, he says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. He gives thanks to God with his whole heart. He doesn't give thanks to God because that's the duty of a Christian or a believer in God. He doesn't give praise to God because on the order of service it says, stand and sing, how great is our God. He praises God from the center of his being. He praises God out of the overflow of his love and devotion to God. 
God created you to praise Him. And as Jesus says in John 4, He's looking for worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth out of sincere, genuine hearts of praise. He's looking for those kinds of worshipers. We should be those kinds of worshipers. The psalmist praises God because, as King David says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. There is a God in heaven who is glorious, and He is doing majestic works in history and now and in the future. And He deserves our praise because He is worthy of it. And if you're thinking about your Savior and filling yourself with lofty thoughts about God, your worship on the Lord's Day will just spill out in enthusiastic praise. It won't be sleepy and reluctant and lackluster and sheepish praise. And then secondly, we notice he praises God in the company of the upright, in the congregation. This is corporate worship. They praise God together. Together they lift their voices in praise to God and thanksgiving to God. And that's what we do as well. We come together as a body. We come together in corporate worship on the Lord's Day. It's the best time of the week. We gather those who know and love God. We come together and the musicians turn up their amps. What amps? We don't have amps. I think there's one. There's like one amp that's in their ears. We turn up the sound system and we sing together and we praise God and we thank God together in full voices and loud praise. And it's glorious and it honors and magnifies God. We can get so worried in our own little selves about what the person next to us might think about our voice. When we sing, we're thinking, I don't want to sing too loud. My voice isn't very good. And some Christians don't even sing. Inconceivable. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, says the prophet Inigo Montoya. Sometimes we need to get over ourselves and sing. Psalm 33.3, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 47.1, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. And if you really want to be blessed, these people know something. You sit up front, right? You sit up front. And you hear all of you guys singing, and all of that praise is coming your way. It's glorious. That's why we, these are the $10 seats. <laughs> praise God with your whole heart. A second way we should respond number two, praise God for his glorious works. Praise God for his glorious works. Look at verses two and three. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who de delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Every work of God is great. 
Every work of God comes from the greatness of his wisdom and his goodness and righteousness and justice and sovereignty. Immediately in the first words of the first book of the Bible, we see the greatness of God's works. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Spoke the word. Over and over, things exist out of nothing. How great is that? In his creative power, there was water and land and vegetation and stars and moon and fish and birds and livestock. And his crowning creation, he created man and woman and he created them in his image. Greatness, glory. Why does anything exist? Because God. Why does anything continue to exist? God. Why do atoms hold together? God. Why do rains come and sunny days happen and plants grow to feed us? Without God's creative power, there isn't anything. We see the greatness of God's rescuing power to deliver Israel from bondage in Egypt and parting the Red Sea and sustaining Israel in the wilderness in the wilderness wanderings with daily food and water and clothes that don't wear out for 40 years. And we could go on and on throughout history and into your life. Great are the works of God. And in his greatest work of all is all that he did to redeem lost, helpless, doomed sinners from certain judgment because of our callous, rebellious disobedience to God. Apart from God's loving, gracious, merciful, saving work through Jesus Christ, every human being would die and go to hell. But at the right time, God sent his divine son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, to take on flesh and live among us. God showed up in the flesh and lived among us. Brethren, we, we need to not get so used to hearing that, that it, we failed to be lost in the wonder of it. Think about that as Christmas is approaching. He lived the sinless, holy life that you and I could never live. And he died, and he took your judgment on himself in your place. And he miraculously rose from the dead, purchasing your salvation. So that you, by faith, could be forgiven of every sin ever committed against a holy God. Now and forever. And you would receive the righteousness of Jesus through faith in him. There is no greater work of God than his work of redeeming sinners like us. God's works are great and full of splendor and majesty. They're great because they're done by a righteous, almighty, sovereign, glorious God who is worthy of praise. 
says his works are studied by all those who delight in them. God does what he does because he is glorious, and he wants his glory to be seen, and to be delighted in, and to be praised, because it's right, and because it's good for our strengthening and for our encouragement. Is studying the works of God a delight to you? Is that something you give time and attention to? King David says in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what should happen as we study the nature and works of God. We taste and see by studying God, studying what the scriptures have to say about who God is, what he has done, and discovering and delighting in his goodness and in his beauty. Really tasting the goodness and glory of God does not happen if you are not in the scriptures. Really tasting the goodness and glory of God doesn't happen if you're in the scriptures scriptures just casually and quickly reading through them while you're eating your post-toasties. Is that a cereal, post-toasties? The tasting and delighting comes from savoring. You can make a delicious, perfect ribeye or porterhouse or filet. Hot, juicy, perfectly seared, perfectly seasoned, and barely even notice its glory if you just suck it down with a Coke while you're watching Ohio State beat Michigan next week. (laughs) Your attention is not on that amazing steak. You delight, your delight in that steak is heightened and magnified as you slow down and savor it, right? As you savor it, you verbalize your delight in it. Oh man, this is so good. And then you praise the chef, and then you praise God for all of it, right? That juicy steak, and for the way it was cooked, and the way it makes your taste buds dance and sing and praise. And some of us need to retrain our spiritual taste buds so that we're delighting in God and not so easily captivated by all the worldly junk food. We need to be students of the book, and we need to slow down and savor those parts that magnify the goodness and glory of God and the splendor and majesty of his works. Ponder them, meditate on them. I've said this before, but Thomas Watson really nails it, I think, when he he says this. The reason we so often walk away from our Bible reading so cold is because we don't warm ourselves at the fires of meditation. I believe that in the soul of my being. Savor it. Savor not only the word of God, but also what God has revealed about himself in his creation and in his providence. Walk outside and notice the beauty of the grass and the leaves what, that used to be there. And the, the, the trees and the water and the warm temperature. And ponder it and say, oh God, thank you for your providence. 
Thank you for your goodness. This is so good. This is so beautiful. Thank you, God, that you created it. It should cause us to lift our minds and our hearts to praise. Think about how gloriously God made the human body. All the things. I I am constantly amazed at the human body. So many aspects of it are just like, I don't know how anybody in their right mind could say this just happened and just evolved out of stuff. It's ridiculous. It's perfectly designed. Ponder it and praise God for it. And think about the majesty and the glory of the cross. How God worked redemption and purchased our salvation there. Think about what Jesus did in his love, in his death and resurrection. Ponder it and praise God for it. Verse 4, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. God's wondrous works are remembered not just because they're memorable. They are memorable, right? It's like you see that and it's like, wow, that's amazing. You're not going to easily forget. But we kind of do forget. We're very short-sighted. We're prone to forgetting. We need to be regularly reminded. And as we're reminded of his glory and his wondrous works, it's an act of his grace and as an act of his mercy. Because we're encouraged and built up and blessed by these reminders. And how did God cause his wondrous works to be remembered? He's given us his inerrant, infallible, written revelation in Scripture. We remember them as we read it and we study it. And we're reminded through the regular preaching of his word each day, each Sunday on the Lord's Day. And he gave us two ordinances that we're to practice regularly, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And both of these ordinances remind us regularly of the grace and mercy of God that was lavished on us. And God's work of redemption through Jesus Christ, the salvation of our souls, we're reminded regularly. Praise God with your whole heart. Praise God for his glorious works. And number three, praise God for his gracious providence. Praise God for his gracious providence. Verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. God not only lovingly created you and knit you together in your mother's womb, but in his loving kindness, he has committed himself to feed you and sustain you for all the days that he has ordained for you, for all of them. This is the commitment that he's made to his people. He fed Adam and Eve in the garden with delicious food. He sustained his covenant people, Israel, in the wilderness through daily food and water, providing for their need. He gave Israel the promised land flowing with milk and honey. And he has and he will sustain you and I daily. He's committed himself for the sake of his own name to your good and to your sustenance. Verse 6, he has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. 
God gave Israel the promised land, and as Israel entered that land, God went before them, and he showed them his power on behalf of his chosen people as his people conquered and settled the land that he gave them. The inheritance of the nations. He showed them his power, it says. He wanted his power to be seen. So that they would know and they would remember who it was who delivered them and provided for them. So that they would lift their eyes and their hearts to worship him. For his almighty gracious sovereignty. And when God clearly and powerfully works on our behalf. He wants us to notice and then to lift our eyes to heaven and lift our lips in praise to him. It's our worship that encourages us and it reminds us of who we are and it reminds us of who God is. And it gives God the praise that's due his name and it reminds us how utterly dependent we are on the providence of God for everything as we praise him and thank him for what we see him doing. Notice what God is doing and praise him. Verses 7 7 and 8. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. All of God's works reflect his character. God is faithful and just, so his works are faithful and just. His works are faithful to his promises, they're consistent with his covenants. And they are just because in his omniscience, in his perfect knowledge, God always knows what actions are right and righteous. Always. All his precepts are trustworthy and true because God is trustworthy and true. God's word is true because, as the writer of Hebrews says, it is impossible for God to lie. The Bible is not just an old stodgy, dusty book with quaint ideas hopelessly tied to some ancient culture with no relevance for today. It's exactly the opposite. This is God's eternal word. When you pick up this book and you read it, every word on every page is trustworthy. What it teaches you is infallible. It will never, ever lead you astray. It is just as true and trustworthy today as it was when it was penned. And God's word is eternal. They are established forever and ever, his precepts, the psalmist says. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. He says later in Matthew 24.35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Verse 9, He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. 
God's most glorious demonstration of love is sending redemption to his people. He powerfully rescued his people from oppressive slavery in Egypt in a glorious, dramatic deliverance for his glory. And in the ultimate fulfillment of rescue and deliverance for his people, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as our redeemer to rescue us from oppressive slavery to sin and the devil in his glorious, dramatic resurrection from the dead. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And his covenant redemption in Jesus can never be revoked, set aside, canceled, or nullified. Never. God will be faithful to his covenant forever. Amen? Amen. Thank the Lord. Listen to the Apostle Paul in, in Romans 8, 35 to 39. This is, this is our rock-solid security in Christ, you who trust in him. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a comforting, assuring, stabilizing truth that is. Thank God for it. Praise God for his gracious providence. And number four, praise God for his infinite wisdom. Praise God for his infinite wisdom. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. For all those who practice it have a good understanding. In light of all that God is, his glory, his sovereignty, his majesty, his righteousness, his grace, his mercy, his power, his faithfulness, his justice, his holiness. In light of all of his great, the greatness and splendor and majesty of his works, the most fitting response for you, Christian, is this, fear God, fear God. Now, that does not mean that you, Christian, are to walk around and being scared of God. If you've repented and trusted in Christ for your salvation, you have nothing to fear. God is for you and with you and behind you, and your life now is a life of grace. The one who has never trusted in the atoning work of Christ for his sins has much to be afraid of. Because that person will face God not as Savior but as judge. But for the Christian to fear God is to walk in reverence, to walk in awe, and to walk in humility 
before the glory of God. Know who God is in his glory. Know who you are in your sinfulness. And submit to God's lordship in love and devotion and obedience. Fear God. God says in Isaiah 66, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. And not only will you be incredibly blessed in your soul and in your life and find spiritual growth, but you will find God's perfect wisdom. There is, this is where wisdom begins. The fear of God is the doorway to wisdom. When you elevate yourself in your pride and in your self-sufficiency and place yourself on the throne of your life, You'll not only be unfulfilled and empty as you walk in ungodly, worldly wisdom, but the Bible says you will find the opposition of God. James and Peter both say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Listen, when you fear God and understand the wisdom of God, you understand everything else. When you study his word and the spirit of God illuminates it to your heart and to your understanding, your spiritual eyes are opened to what God is up to. Your eyes are opened to who we are, who God is, where everything is going, how to live successfully for the glory of God, everything. You will have a good understanding, it says. One commentator expresses it this way, you'll have sound insight into God's moral order for the world. When Joshua was about to embark on a massive leadership responsibility and challenge leading the people of Israel into the promised land, he gave Joshua the key to wisdom and success. Joshua 1, 7 and 8, only be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to all the law, all that God has revealed, that Moses, my servant, commanded you, do not turn from it from to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you, will, you shall meditate on it, meditate on it, savor it, Day and night. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Be careful to do all that is written in it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then the psalmist closes the psalm the way it begins with praise to God. He says, His praise endures forever. And our praise of him endures forever. In this life, as we delight in him, and as we praise him, and all the way into the life to come, for all eternity, we'll be praising him. King David says in Psalm 145, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. He's worthy of it, amen? Amen.
So as we gather for Thanksgiving this week, let's remember these reminders from Psalm 111. When we gather, we don't thank the pilgrims. We don't thank the universe for whatever the universe gave us. We don't only thank Aunt Judy for the raspberry jello mold with grated carrots in it. <laughs> grated carrots in it. Who puts grated carrots in jello mold? <laughs> Where does Thanksgiving belong on Thanksgiving Day and every other day? Thank God. Praise Him. With your whole being. For the greatness of his glorious works. For his gracious providence. For his infinite wisdom. And for our great redemption in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are amazed and captured by your greatness, by your glory, by your, the majesty and splendor of your works. Thank you, God, that you are a God who is a promise-keeping God, a promise-making God, who is faithful to his covenants forever. Thank you, God, that you lavish your grace on all those who fear you. I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here who does not yet know you as Savior, as Lord, I pray, God, that you would so draw them and woo them, that you would soften their heart and draw them to faith in Christ. May they recognize their need, their dire, utter, desperate need for a Savior and trust in you Trust in Jesus Christ alone. Thank you, God. We know that you are a glorious God in the heavens, but you have not lifted your hand. You are still working and moving in your sovereign grace, moving everything toward your determined ends, which are good. Lord, move in us that we might notice what you're doing that we might read and study and meditate and savor the truths in Scripture and then lift our eyes and turn our voices to worship and praise and thanksgiving. For you are worthy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.